Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. Um, if you've been listening around so far, then you know that we're in the middle of Faust, and we're taking a little bit of a divergent tack here today to give you a little bit of a teaser for something that's upcoming. Um, Daniel and I are both going to be speaking at the Intelligence Speech Conference uh, on June 27th. And we're, we're basically going to be talking about canonization and why you've never heard of the most popular poets of the 19th century. Uh, we're going to be talking tonight about a couple of those extraordinarily popular poets. And then we're going to be talking on the 27th about why it is that they sort of got erased from history. Before we talk about that, uh, I want to give a little bit of a plug to a new podcast. Well, it's a podcast that's newly featured on the Agora Podcast Network that I think you'll probably find pretty timely if you've been paying close attention to current events in the US. That's Black Wall Street 1921. It's a podcast that tries to take a look at what is undoubtedly the largest um, racially motivated massacre in American history to give context for it, to look at what led up to it, what the outcome was, so on and so forth. It's a, a really well done podcast. Uh, please check it out and, you know, have that in mind as you're watching the news or thinking through sort of what you're seeing on whatever social media that you're engaged with. Okay. So, um, Daniel, I, I gave you a couple of poems to look at mm -hmm. to try to think through what American poetry was like in the, the 19th century. And the first poem, the, the one that I really want to start with and if anybody's listening along, I'm going to give the links to these in the show notes 
The first poem is Death of an Infant by Lydia Huntley Sigourney. I, I know it looks like Sigourney, but it's pronounced Sigourney. So um, do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? Um, well, I can read it. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, and and uh, I guess fair warning for everybody. I uh, Ever since I had a child of my own, any art or media uh, involving distress for children uh it became infinitely harder for me to I, i'm gonna tell you i'm gonna admit to everybody right now i i really broke down in sobs watching the children's baby pixar movie coco uh because it ended up no one warned me that it ended up being about a father who dies and doesn't have a chance to say goodbye to his baby so you know i was a wreck anyway so here's the here's the poem death of an infant uh by lydia huntley sigourney death found strange beauty on that cherub brow and dashed it out There was a tint of rose, or cheek and lip. He touched the veins with ice, and the rose faded. Forth from those blue eyes there spake a wistful tenderness, a doubt whether to grieve or sleep, which innocence alone can wear. With ruthless haste he bound the silken fringes of their curtaining lids forever. There had been a murmuring sound with which the babe would claim its mother's ear, charming her even to tears. The spoiler set his seal of silence. But there beamed a smile, so fixed and holy from that marble brow. Death gazed and left it there. He dared not steal the signet ring of heaven. All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot and say, summarize the poem. Uh, well, an, uh, an icy cold infant lay dead uh, and is being very closely observed by the, I guess, the, the speaker of the poem. And uh, noting all of the uh, all of the elements of that infant's life that had been robbed by the touch of death, and finally noting one that had not been—that is the uh, the sort of beatific expression on the infant's face that had that had been that had not been erased, that had not been removed, that had not been taken from the uh, the fig- by the figure of death. Yeah, and what's the upshot? Why should the mother not feel so extraordinarily horrified or sad by this? Hey, good question. <laughs> Look at the last line. Well, right, the signet ring of heaven would again. Would, okay, baby goes to right, heaven. baby goes to heaven. <laughs> All right, that's it. That's the poem. I it, it it's it's astounding in its bluntness. Mm-hmm. Because in the 20th and 21st century, we expect something else. But you can take a look at the – and you did a fantastic job at the summary. That's it. I, yeah. I was putting you on the spot. But whenever I teach this poem, you know, th- this was an extraordinarily popular 19th century American poem. When I teach this poem, I tell my students like, OK, there's no subtext. There's just text. Yeah. Right? That's it. All right. There are flashes of metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. And there's personification of the figure of death. But if you look at this poem rhetorically, it is exactly what you said. Yeah. <laughs> Mother looks at an infant that died and then feels better because the, the dead infant is smiling which is a signifier of its innocence, meaning it has returned to heaven. Yeah. 
It's the it's the well, it's the, uh, the the victory over death, which is of course kind of the central theological uh, conceit of of uh, Christianity as as typically understood, right? Like the yeah, death is scary, death is bad, but death loses. Yeah, the end. Yeah. Okay, so what is this poem doing? Why would a poem about the death of an infant be a hit in the 19th century. I mean, state the obvious. Well, yeah. I mean, historically, uh, infant mortality was extremely common. I mean, you would, if you were some, if you were someone who, you know, had a family, if, if you were someone who was having children in your life, as was expected of most people and was encouraged, um, it was expected and encouraged because so many of them would die in their infancy. So it's rather like, you know, there's, I hate to use so crass a term, but there's a big market for a poem helping you feel better about a tragedy that would be visit- visited upon your family multiple times, typically in a lifetime. Yeah, it was a common occurrence. And this was a poem that that did some of the work of public mourning. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So it's not – a complicated poem in the way that the 20th or 21st centuries might valorize a complicated poem. Mm-hmm. But it's a poem that does cultural work. It's a poem that um, sold well. Sigourney was a best-selling poet. She, she made her livelihood from, from her books, from her writing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's a poem that does the work of the time. It, it's sentimental verse. Mm-hmm. What this poem wants to do is evoke an emotion in the reader. And and if you are a parent, it, it will evoke an emotion. I've been teaching this poem for about 10 years. Yeah. And <clears throat> four years ago, it didn't really mean that much to me. And four years later, it it doesn't exactly you know mean the world to me but it hits in a way that i wouldn't have had it hit 4 years earlier yeah um so it does a kind of cultural work right so this was again a bestseller and this wasn't the only quote unquote dead baby poem yeah that was a genre yeah, yeah, well, a bit, was, a bit like the uh, there's the the term of art in the uh, the '60s record industry, death discs for the singles about your boyfriend dying in a car wreck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a very good Beach Boys song that's one one of my favorites, which is basically about um, the the speaker's girlfriend making him feel better about. Uh, wrecking his car. So yeah, there's that genre of, of, of writing, right? So this does a kind of cultural work and it does it through sentiment. Sentimental poetry is poetry that's there to evoke an emotion, right? Um, here the emotion is evoked for the purpose of mourning. And it's a weird poem because on the one hand, well, it's not a weird poem. It, it, it's a poem that seems weird to us because we expect something different out of poetry. 
and the 19th century expected something else. Um, it's a poem that is on the one hand personal and on the other hand kind of one size fits all. Yeah. Right? So it does the work of private mourning, but it also does the work of doing that private mourning publicly through mass publication. Does this make sense? Yeah, yeah. All right. So I want to turn from that to the the second poem I sent you, um, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper's mm. The Slave Mother. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, um, would you care to read that one through? I, I, I shall. This is uh, The Slave Mother. Heard you that shriek? It rose so wildly on the air. It seemed as if a burdened heart was breaking in despair. Saw you those hands so sadly clasped, the bowed and feeble head, the shuddering of that fragile form, that look of grief and dread. Saw you the sad imploring eye, its every glance was pain, as if a storm of agony were sleeping through the brain. She is a mother, pale with fear, her boy clings to her side, and in her kirtle vainly tries to his trembling form to hide. He is not hers, although she bore for him a mother's pains. He is not hers, although her blood is coursing through his veins. He is not hers, for cruel hands may rudely tear apart the only wreath of household love that binds her breaking heart. His love has been a joyous light that o'er her pathway smiled, a fountain gushing ever new amid life's desert wild. His lightest word has been a tone of music round her heart, their lives a streamlet blent in one, Oh, father, must they part? They tear him from her circling arms, her last and fond embrace. Oh, never may, never more may her sad eyes gaze on his mournful face. No marvel, then, these bitter shrieks disturb the listening air. She is a mother, and her heart is breaking in despair. I'm going to put you on the spot one more time. Mm -hmm. What is this poem about? Uh... Well, this poem is about a an enslaved woman being having her son taken away from her, either uh, just to uh, perhaps a different property that the uh, the plantation owner owns, or perhaps even the boy has been sold uh, to another owner, or at least someone who claims to own human beings, uh, so that they are taken away from one another. And we'll never see one another again. And the poem is, the speaker of the poem is asking if you heard this grief. Not just describing it, but asking the reader if they heard or even noticed it. Did you notice, you know, a sad imploring yeah. eye? Did you hear it? And, yeah. and, and, and at final last, didactically saying she is a mother and her heart is breaking yeah. in despair. No, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Man. Yeah. That's the yeah. Poem. Yeah. All right. So this is really fascinating. So much 20th century depictions of enslavement focus on the breaking of the body. It, it, it's really sort of, it's a strange thing. Like, okay. It's not exactly strange. It, it's the twentieth century emphasis on on, I guess, bodily harm, 
like the 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 image I always have is um, I don't know if you ever saw Roots, but it mm-hmm. it, it was uh, a, a book written by Alex Haley and then turned into the sort of event uh, uh, on TV made into a movie yeah. with LeVar Burton as kind of the main character. And one of the pivotal scenes is when Burton's character, Kunta Kinte, who has been taken from uh, Africa, has been enslaved and is being beaten to renounce his name. And so the the slave driver keeps whipping him and saying, your name's Toby. What's your name? And he keeps repeating Kunta Kente. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, your name's Toby. And he keeps beating him again and again. Um, you can see this even in – not even even, but you can see this in something like uh, Tarantino's Django Unchained, mm-hmm. which is – I think it was Tarantino's sincere attempt, You know whether or not he did it. But it was his sincere attempt to turn enslavement into a kind of revenge fantasy, you know, um, that focused so much on the physical violence. Yeah. And what the 19th century, for for several reasons, often focused on was emotional and psychological violence. Yeah. Um, I mean, Frederick Douglass is extraordinarily clear-eyed about not just the physical torments that enslavement entails, but also the psychology of enslavement. And it, it, I mean, it's extraordinary to to read him. I, I really think every American needs to – everyone needs to read much more Frederick Douglass than they already do mm-hmm. because his his attunement to the psychological and emotional – breakdown is extraordinary, right? Um, I think recently you've been seeing a much more complicated and nuanced attempt to understand the emotional and psychological breaking along with the physical breaking. And something that I'd recommend is Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad, which, which is really attuned to the complexities of enslavement. Um, in ways that sort of simplistic renderings of the broken body don't quite get at. Mm-hmm. But that gets us back to this poem. Um, this is all about the – well, it's a sentimental poem. Yeah. It's, it's, a it's all about poem It's all that, about sentiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It requires us to feel with – the mother losing her child, right? Yeah. Um, now there are a couple of complicated things going on in the 19th century. The the and again, Frederick Douglass is extraordinarily clear-eyed about this. Um, but again, the the um, the breakup of the family was more than just a sentimental thing, and this would have been felt. In, in any reader, the breakup of the family was a political thing as well. Mm-hmm. The family was the political unit in the 19th century. And so part of the reason why enslaved peoples were, were sort of, you know, taken apart in this way was to prevent certain kinds of bonds from even forming. Yeah. It was to ensure a, yeah. a depoliticized population, not just 
not just depoliticized de jour by being rendered non-persons by the law, but depoliticized even in their potential to become a political class. Yeah. And again, um, if you want to see this enacted, read Whitehead's novel, which is all about, I mean, the, the first chapter is all about jockeying for position among the enslaved on a plantation. Hmm, yeah. And he did his research. That's not trying to damn the already damned, to, to, to damn the enslaved. Uh, a lot of times this was the only chance you had. Yeah. But he is also a very clear-eyed writer about the situation of of enslavement. Um, to get back to it, though, this is a political poem, mm-hmm. no? Oh, yeah. Uh, this is a poem that that merges or, or intertwines politics and sentiment, um, perhaps in uncomfortable ways, but because sometimes sentiment is a little too broad, perhaps, mm-hmm. but in ways that, that I think make it effective to uh, a wide readership, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. So we've read two sentimental poems that address contemporary events, right? And that Sigourney was also an abolitionist and more than that, interested in Native American causes. Mm-hmm. She wrote a couple of poems about the um, the the Trail of Tears, about, you know, that particular genocide. Yeah. Part of what they're doing is using sentiment for complicated reasons, right? Yeah, yeah. And let me walk back for a second. Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who wrote The Slave Mother, was also a best-selling American poet. Um, she was black. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> – for anyone who says there were no African American uh, writers, you know, before the the Civil War, no. Yeah, she was born in eighteen twenty five, died in nineteen eleven. All right, so um, we are dealing with two writers who our our audience have probably never heard of, right? And you may or may not be interested in the actual verse itself. It may or may not speak to your particular contemporary concerns. But there are interesting things we can say about these poems as concerns 19th American or 19th century American life, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So the third one that I sent you is The Day is Done by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And do you want to take a shot and read that one? Sure. Well, uh, I'll I'll okay. stretch my pipes a little more. This is this is good. This is good for <laughs> me. I never read I never read poetry. Um, as as listeners of the uh, of the pod will know, I am I'm very deficient. So this is uh this is fantastic practice for me. Hey, you know what? You're you're a lot better at it than um than you think you are. And <laughs> I'm going to tell you why. Okay. In, in about ten minutes. But okay. Oh, great. Oh, that's that's good. That'll keep me going. I, I love praise. This will be, <laughs> this will uh, this keeps me on board for the pod. Okay. Here's the day is done. The day is done, and the darkness falls from the wings of night as a feather is wafted downward from an eagle in his flight. I see the lights of the village gleam through the rain and the mist, and a feeling of sadness comes o'er me that my soul cannot resist. A feeling of sadness and longing that is not akin to pain, and resembles sorrow only as the mist resembles the rain. Come, 
read to me some poem, some simple and heartfelt lay, that shall soothe this restless feeling and banish the thoughts of day. Not from the grand old masters, not from the bards sublime, whose distant footsteps echo through the corridors of time. For, like strains of martial music, their mighty thoughts suggest life's endless toil and endeavor, and tonight I long for rest. Read from some humbler poet, whose songs gush from his heart, as showers from the clouds of summer, or tears from the eyelids start, who, through long days of labor, and nights devoid of ease, still heard in his soul the music of wonderful melodies. Such songs have power to quiet the restless pulse of care, and come like the benediction that follows after a prayer. Then read from the treasured volume the poem of thy choice, and lend to the rhyme of the poet the beauty of thy voice. And the night shall be filled with music, and the cares that infest the day shall fold their tents like the Arabs, and as silently steal away. All right, what's it about? So this is about some schmuck coming in after a hard day's work. <laughs> he's coming in from the fields or maybe the woods. Maybe he's a woodsman, but he, his work takes place out of doors and he's going back home to the village. It's kind of yucky out, rainy and misty. And he just wants, you know, he just, he just wants to kick back and enjoy himself with a little bit of verse. Nothing too ponderous, nothing serious. He's not out to feel even more. You know, he's not out to feel even more burdened by the world, even more up against some great struggle. He's just out to kick back, soothe his restless feeling, as it says there. And so he's going to turn off his brain and pick up some, uh, you know, some some nice, you know, poet that no one's going to, you know, no one's going to mistake for great literature. But it's, you know, it's enjoyable. And uh, and with that, he shall he shall he shall send away. The cares of the day, uh, as as the Bedouins would pack up their camp and move on. The end. The end. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's it. That's the poem. Um, there, there are some stabs at um, at tropes here. The day is done, and the darkness falls from the wings of night as a feather is wafted downward from an eagle in flight. Okay, so you have darkness, sort of personified or, or it falls from the wings of night as a feather is wafted downward. Okay. So you have that simile. I see the lights of the village gleam through the rain and the mist and a feeling of sadness comes over me that my soul cannot resist a feeling of sadness and longing that is not akin to pain and resembles sorrow only as the mist resembles rain. So this isn't like absolute metaphysical despair this isn't hamlet sort of debating with himself the meaning of existence this mm -hmm. is just like man you know it's just kind of like a hard day yeah um you absolutely nailed it there's always an economics in longfellow um longfellow he was a little bit more complicated poet than than what i often make him out to be in my lectures um longfellow is often trying to negotiate with his own ambitions as a poet, his own understanding of the position of America and <clears throat> what he can actually do in verse. Um, this is a digression, but it's an interesting digression. Longfellow kept trying to write epics in the 1840s and 1850s about the national character when it looked like there wasn't going to be a nation. Yeah. Um, 
he he was writing at a time mostly in you know in the 1850s and into the 1860s when <clears throat> things were really falling apart and he had these ambitions to write a national epic but how do you write a national epic about a nation that's just it's built on two genocides yeah and is coming apart at the seams so he he can't write about the American Civil War he writes the the poem about Paul Revere, but then in in the middle of the Civil War, he writes this poem called um, "Tales from a Wayside Inn," mm-hmm. where he recontextualizes the ride of Paul Revere um, as this tale told among uh, a multicultural group trying to weather out a winter storm at an actual uh, hotel in the middle of Massachusetts. Like the place is actually there. The Wayside Inn is actually there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's this multicultural group. Um, no African-Americans, but there's a Swedish dude, a Jewish dude, an Italian dude, the local poet, the this guy, the that guy. And it's trying to develop some kind of image of what the nation could be, but they're weathering out the storm, right? Yeah. And this is written in the middle of the Civil War, and there's this uh, constant trope in the 1860s of weathering out the storm yeah. among no- Northern poets. So um, he 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 writes these mini epics. He wrote Evangeline, um, which doesn't take the American Revolution as its sort of inception point. Instead, it turns into an epic of pioneering. It's going out yeah. and coming back to the city. And Hiawatha is the weirdest epic I've ever read. Um, on the one hand, he's trying, really trying to honor the, the, the people who were here before the Europeans, the, the Native Americans. Um, on the other, he has to contend with the fact that the Europeans killed and displaced the Native Americans. And um, the ending is is almost comical. Uh, Hiawatha, this grand chief, basically tells his tribe, hey, man, the white man's here to teach you all about Jesus, so I'm going to paddle my magic canoe out into the distance and peace out. That's it. <laughs> right. Um, so, so Longfellow is constantly negotiating with, with all of these complexities. Um, but – a poem like The Day Is Done was one of his most popular ones before and after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And on the day of the conference, we'll talk about Longfellow before and after the Civil War. Um, but what is this about? It, this is almost an Ars Poetica about middle-brow poetry. Yeah. Middle-brow, yeah. sentimental poetry. I had a long day at work. I, I used up everything. I, I earned my my keep, and now I got to kick back, relax, and numb myself out with some easy emotional verse. Yeah, that's it. Um, now let's turn from that to the section of the wasteland that I sent you. Oh <laughs> yes. All right. So um. Listeners, I I, uh, I, I I recommended that uh, Daniel read 
the first section of the wasteland uh, collected in the wasteland annotated with the the T.S. Eliot's contemporary prose. Hmm, yeah. All right. And um, I want to start off by looking at uh, – this was – you know, written in in the teens and, and eventually published in 1922. I want to start off by looking at the epigraph that that opens it up. So, um, Daniel, do you have any Latin with some Greek thrown in there? I have a a very tiny bit of Latin, uh, no Greek at all. Um, but I can give this a a a I can give this the old college try. Be my guest. All right. Nam sibilam quidem cumis ego ipse oculis meis vidi in ampula pendere et cum ili pueri dicerent. Uh, some Greek, uh, <laughs> respondebat ila, and then some more Greek. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, do you have any idea what that means? Um, well, I do see the word Sybil jumping right out there. Uh, and, uh, I would, I would imagine that's the Sybil of Cumai. Um, Oculis, something to do with, with looking or spying. Um, but, uh, no, I, I, I don't have enough Latin to really put it together. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and you cannot identify the source, can you? I, no, I would, I would be very hard pressed. Oh, Lord. You Philistine. <laughs> this, of course, is from the Satyricon of Petronius, a, a sort of work from late antiquity, which involves two uh, Roman youths going out to the provinces, um, mixing it up with and mocking a bunch of nouveau riche, and then trying to uh, get with the hot boys that are around in the provinces. Um, what this says <clears> – <throat> is uh, I saw with my own eyes the Cumaean Sybil once, and I asked her, what do you want? And she said, I want to die. Okay, so who was the Cumaean Sybil? Do you know this one? Um, yeah, well, I know a little bit. I don't know all the ins and outs, but uh, this was a supposed prophetess who uh, lived nearby or in a cave sort of above the uh, Greek colony of Cumae um, and was renowned enough that her sort of prophetic or ostensible prophetic pronouncements were purchased by the Romans from the Cumaeans um, and kept in the, the temple of Jupiter to be consulted at particular points of crisis. Uh, and, uh, but as for the, that's about kind of all I know about the Sybil and, and sort of what, what it portends. I, yeah. You Philistine. Okay. So she had, <laughs> She was a favorite of Apollo and had been blessed with second sight. And he said, I will give you anything you want. And she asked for eternal life, but forgot to ask for eternal youth. Aha. So that means her existence is one of exponential dis- uh, exponential decay. Yes. Now, this uh, – and I'm indebted to uh, Christopher Ricks who wrote a book, T.S. Eliot and Prejudice. Uh, for this analysis, I, I took several classes with him in undergrad, and he pronounced on this uh, often. But one of the the sort of 
reigning themes throughout the wasteland is this idea of exponential decay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the poem is attempting again and again and again to try to get at some kind of rebirth or resurrection, but you cannot have a rebirth without a death. Mm-hmm. So the thing that Elliot is constantly asking is, well, what is the lowest low? What is the bottom? What point do we have to get to until we begin to revive ourselves? And the the ending can be read both uh, sort of optimistically and pessimistically, sort of cautiously optimistically mm-hmm. or extraordinarily pessimistically. Um, so that's just this part. Now, did he translate that for you? He did not. No, this is uh, in the Latin. And not only did he not translate – the Latin or the Greek, he did not transliterate the Greek either. So it is in Latin alphabet and then in Greek alphabet for the Greek parts. So thanks a lot. Yeah. So what is the expectation here? This you is better cl- damn well know your Latin. Right. Greek. This is clearly intended for the uh, sort of educated in, in the, you know, in the sort of classical education sense, educated uh, reader. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There you go. So for Ezra Pound, Il Milio Fabro, the greater craftsman. And that's taken from Dante, from a section that I can't remember what, but <laughs> go back to our episodes on Dante and maybe you'll find it. So you you want to start us out reading this first sort of verse paragraph. Okay. Here we go. This is the uh, the first section, The Burial of the Dead. This is very famous. Mm-hmm. I have read this before. I'll have everyone know. Philistine that I am, I have read it before. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. So here we go. April is the cruelest month. Breeding lilacs. I'm going to stop you there. Oh. Okay. So um, <laughs> why are we starting with April? And what is the significance of April in um, in literature in English? Well, let's go back to our second episode, one that I with the Shouter Sutta. Uh, what he's calling on is the Canterbury Tales. Yeah. Um, the Canterbury Tales begin in April with Easter and the resurrection and the ride to Canterbury as part of the pilgrimage. And what Eliot seems to be doing here is calling on the beginning of literature in English to try to advertise that perhaps we're at an end. April is the cruelest month. It can only be cruel if there is no rebirth, is no resurrection. If Canterbury Tales was the beginning of literature in English, 
then perhaps the wasteland itself is the ending. Hmm. We we haven't even finished the line. Yeah. Please finish the line. <laughs> <clears throat> April is the cruelest month. Breeding lilacs out of the dead. Okay, land. I'm going to stop you there. <laughs> okay, so breeding is a particular word. Uh-huh. It's a very specific word, and um, it's a word that gets a lot of of traction in Swift's modest proposal. Uh, Modest Proposal is the satirical tract that Swift wrote about how to end poverty in Ireland by basically resorting to cannibalism. Um, Mm -hmm. At a certain point in the text, he starts giving you all of these statistics and he kind of blows you away with numbers until you forget to realize that he moves from talking about souls to men and women to breeders. He starts referring to humans as breeders. Yeah. Um, breeding is pure animal husbandry. It's, it's brute animal activity. It's the reduction of sexual relations from any kind of emotional, psychological intimacy to just mere animal fact. So what Elliot is doing here by talking about breeding is taking us to this sort of brute naturalistic reality as opposed to any other kind of higher function, right? Yeah. So we're in a topsy-turvy world and a topsy-turvy world in which the metaphysical has absolutely been stripped. Okay, please keep going. (laughs) Okay. Breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. Okay, so we're back to the topsy-turvy. Mm-hmm. Winter, spring should be that period of rebirth and coming back to life, and here clearly – um Winter is nourishing. That should not be the case. What was up is now down, and what was down is now up. So he's playing on that, right? No. So keep going. All right. Summer surprised us, combing over the Starnberger See with a. Now, where is the Starnberger See? Well, I would say somewhere in the German-speaking lands. Uh, We do have a handy. Uh We do have a handy footnote. Down here, I don't know if this is a uh-huh. spoiler for you, but it's a lake near Munich. Yep, there you go. Oh boy, coming over the Starnbergersee with a shower of rain. We stopped in the colonnade. Okay, who is we and who is the speaker? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't uh, really. Yeah, we don't know yet. <laughs> I guess we don't. We don't know, but we know what they spend their time doing. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. We stopped in the colonnade and went on in sunlight into the Hofgarten and drank coffee and talked for an hour. <laughs> All right, Daniel. Uh, when was the last time you had to hang out with somebody for an hour and sit and drink coffee? <laughs> well, even before the uh, exigencies of a global pandemic, it would have been uh, there you go. A, a, at least a few years since the last time I had time just to stroll about in the sunlight and stop off on a lark to have some coffee and talk yeah. for an hour. Yeah. 
Bingar Kanurusin Stamas Litauen Echtdeutsch. And tell me what that means, Daniel. Uh, well, here, I'm a little less of a Philistine because I have had... <laughs> you have a footnote. I have... Not only do I have a footnote, I also have a few years of high school and college German, which I have mostly forgotten. <laughs> so, uh, this is... Uh, I am... Uh, let's see. I am not, I'm not Russian. I, I, uh, something Lithuanian, very, very German. I am not. Okay. Let me check yeah. my, I'm certainly not Russian. I come from Lithuania, a true German. Okay. Yes. So this is going to be important in 1922. We're coming off the heels of world war one and what was world war one fought over. Yeah. I don't know either. Um, <laughs> Look, this, I, I the self, the self, so, I mean, clearly, it was fought over the self determination of Serbia. Clearly, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, but like, um, okay, my one of my favorite um, moments in the Onion, uh, the satirical newspaper, they did this fantastic book called Our Dumb Century, uh, which is reproductions of sort of satirical newspapers if they had occurred. Yeah. During the course of the 20th century. And they have World War One. war breaks out, and it's just every nation fighting itself. It's like <laughs> yeah. these weird circular patterns. They have the uh, the map um, with a bunch of arrows. And I actually did uh, – that, that book came out when I was a precocious high schooler, and I was yeah. instantly just besmitten. It was my favorite book I'd ever seen in my life. And I was also the kind of, oh, yeah. the, the kind of person who then looked through all the arrows they had pointing, and like the headline for Who Declares War on Who – and even though it just looks like a mess of random arrows pointing all over the map, they got it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like the 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 reasons for war were impenetrable even to the people who fought it. Right. Yeah. Like the there were all kinds of bizarre propagandistic nationalist claims. Right. Um, and what it broke down to was just claims of empire that sort of devolved and deflated. Um, side note, there's, there's a whole chapter in Search of Lost Time or this whole section where the narrator, Marcel, meditates on World War I breaking out because one of the embassies in this sort of Puritan purge as it went from one administration to another got rid of all the gay guys. Oh, Yeah. And um, that eliminated this uh, host of, um, I guess, connections to other connections to other connections to other connections. And on the one hand, um, you know, the new administration pledged no more, you know, sexual this and that and the other thing. On the other hand, they purged their whole embassy of anyone who was effective and anyone who could make contacts or connections yeah. with anyone else so it's it's um kind of this weird irony uh i don't know if proust was accurate but it is a section yeah, in yeah. search of lost time uh anyway you have this speaker giving this kind of um sort of nationalist claim for their their pronunciation and their heritage mm -hmm. right and when we were children staying at the Archduke's, uh-oh. <laughs> the very mention of an Archduke should bring about what? Uh, well, the – well, I mean it brings to mind, of course, the Archduke who was assassinated and uh, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary who like, touched off the whole war. And just kind of the wider 
know, this is what, 1922 this is published? Um, yeah. I would say it would, it would, it would evoke the entire just absolutely destroyed European aristocracy. I mean, by, by this point, the entire sort of apparatus of archdukes and royal houses across huge swaths of the continent were, were, were deposed, were, were disempowered, were scattered. It's a, it's, 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 it's a vision of, another, of a, of a dead world. Yeah. And that reminds me of another moment in Proust. Um, in the, the first novel in Search of Lost Time, uh, Swan's Way, Swan is a character who, makes his money by being able to trace lineages and he can actually tell the difference between a duke and an archduke, um, <laughs> all the kinds of weird minor breakdowns of aristocrats yeah. and can help you trace your family lineage to prove sort of who you are in your social circle, which it, it amounts to fucking nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so – We've already got the Archduke and it's already an evocation of the dude who got shot, which sparked this whole thing off. Yeah. My cousins. Okay. So here we have the first indication of um, a a speaker. Yeah. This is a person who is aristocracy and this is Elliot's real point. What was the purpose of the aristocracy in the feudal era? It's a good question. I mean, they were, they were, the, they were the government. <laughs> right, right. It was, you know? it was essentially, it was, well, as the libertarian dream of uh, privatized government because government was something that was property, which was inherited and passed down through a family. Yeah. Um, and for, from Elliot's point of view, they, they were the government, right? They kept things running. They were the administrators. They were the clerics. They, they sort of were the apparatus of the state. Um, what, what do aristocrats do now? Um, they, uh, well, just recently the, uh, the pretender to the throne of France was, uh, making, uh, tw- Twitter posts about how, uh, statues shouldn't be knocked over because it's disrespectful. <laughs> um, there's that. But anyway, but yeah, no, they, they, uh, especially in the aftermath of World War One, they, they do nothing. They, they stop in the colonnade. They drink coffee and talk for an hour. <laughs> Yeah, well, even before World War One, they did nothing. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, that, like that's that's really the point. Yeah. What are these people doing? They're they're they've got positions, they've got power, they've got money, and they do nothing. He said, "Marie, Marie, hold on tight, and down we went in the mountains. There you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter." So this is uh, uh, that's all we're gonna do of the wasteland. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I don't want to be sued, but it's also <laughs> well. This is an educational podcast. I, I think we're okay. This is still but, this is still the, under copyright. Come on. But but the 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 whole point is this is one speaker. These are several lines. This is an evocation of a person who is an absolute waste. Mm-hmm. There, there's no point in. This person's aristocratic Barry. There's no point in the aristocracy at this point. Um, this is just frivolousness and backwardsness and topsy-turviness. Yeah. Right? Um, we've got invocations of Chaucer. We've got complicated re-renderings of late antiquity. We've got untranslated bits of the Satyricon. <laughs> we've got 
sort of these symbolic resonances that we're supposed to feel sort of, you know, like a palimpsest put uh, put over each other. We've got all of this weird evocation. This is not death of an infant or the slave mother or the day is done. Decidedly so. Right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. So that's what I like to do with the wasteland is to put these poems side by side to say what the hell happened. Yeah. All right? Yeah. Now, the day is done. Longfellow was big in America until the the 1900s. And – if you were looking for a quintessential American poet, then in his own time, people would have said, oh, yeah, that's Longfellow, mm-hmm. right? Um, when I was going to, to, to undergrad, when I was first taking American literature courses, it was basically, okay, there was a bunch of crap and then there was Whitman and Dickinson, which were the good ones, but they were unrecognized at the time. Um, that's really, really, really changed. Hmm. Uh, Whitman and Dickinson were unrecognized at the time for, for complicated reasons. But the poets that we were sort of looking at today or, or tonight were recognized at the time for their own set of reasons, right? Yeah. They spoke to the audience and it was an audience that was middle brow. That was looking for middle brow literature that thought that a poem should do that particular kind of work. Yeah. Sure, there's complicated stuff out there, but that's not the kind of work that the audience wanted it to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. In the 20th century, everything changes. And you get this emphasis on what my students always call the hidden meanings. All right. Well, Daniel, there, there are no hidden meanings in a poem. <laughs> the meanings are right there. Yeah. You just have to know how to read it and unpack it. But the idea that you have to unpack it in a complicated way is, is a 20th and 21st century idea. It's not exactly the same idea in the 19th century. So what the hell happened? Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm very curious to know. Well, if anyone in the audience wants to know, <laughs> um, sign up for Intelligent Speech. We're going to talk about this on on June 27th. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've got a slot in the morning, and it's an online thing. Um, you can register. I think it's about 10 bucks, uh, and you can come into our Zoom presentation. I think it's a Zoom presentation, but it's an online mm-hmm. presentation. And I, I'm actually going to sort of lay out for, for everyone – um, why it is that the culture changed so radically? What happened from the 19th to the 20th century to make it that, um, an audience emerged for something like Eliot and really sort of denigrated the sentimental verse that was so popular in the 19th century? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, this is going to be fascinating because, uh, audience, I am genuinely baffled. This is going, I'm going to discover this as Claude lays it out, uh, because I don't know. <laughs> um, but this, this is, but, but this is very exciting because it's a very, um, one of my more kind of recent historical hobby horses or something that I have been kind of, cause, you know, if you're a listener, you know me, I'm, uh, I'm a horrible and irredeemable autodidact. 
I'm always curious about something. I'm always digging more into it. And I'm very curious about the kind of one of the sort of projects I've been giving myself over the last few years is to try to understand. <laughs> I'm going to try to understand the United States of America. All right. <laughs> For one, <laughs> but, but the key to that, I've zeroed in on it. Key to that is understanding just how batshit crazy it went in the 1840s. And how that extends to the present day, how we're living in the long 1840s, basically, and the transition that occurred between that kind of second great awakening into the kind of modernist uh, post-World War One, interwar, post-war sort of schema that we're a little more at home and a little more familiar with. So I'm going to be very interested because this is right in the wheelhouse of something I'm sort of a broader project. <laughs> Of my own, but, uh, but anyway, y'all really should check out the lineup for intelligent speech. It is, um, I mean, it's pretty much all day. It's programs starting. There's going to be like, I'm looking at the schedule right now. There's four different classrooms, right? So for any given like time, like, you know, uh, 40, 45 minute time period, there's like four different things to choose from. It's a huge conference, tons of heavy hitters from the podcasting world. Um, you got, uh, of course, all of our Agora favorites, uh, Nia Clark from Black Wall Street. Uh, actually, we, you know, we mentioned Black Wall Street earlier. Uh, she's going to be presenting. Um, we got, uh, one of, one of my actual old heroes of podcasting, Robin Pearson of History of Byzantium is giving some talking. Uh, Chris Stewart of History of China, lots of friends of the show, um, coming on. It's, uh, I mean, like I said, it's heavy hitting stuff. And I mean, clearly, Signing up will be worth it just for me and Claude. I'm going to tell you that right now. You are already getting your money back just by kicking it off at 10 o'clock with us. And then you still have a whole day of just gravy after that. You frankly, you'd be a fool not to go sign up. So check out intelligentspeechconference.com. Uh, or you can Google search intelligent speech conference. Um, you'll see how it's all set up. You'll be able to register. Uh, again, that's going to be Saturday, the 27th of June. So coming up in, uh, I think a little, uh, I guess it'll be a couple weeks from when we're recording this. Um, but it should definitely be a really good time. Uh, tons of really thoughtful discussion. And like I said, you will, uh, Claude is promising me the skeleton key to understanding American culture. So that should be really exciting to sit in on. <laughs> All right. And I actually do have an answer to this question. This is my field. So yes. <laughs> if you want to get lost in the weeds with an actual academic, yeah, come on in. All right. Well, Daniel, this this has been a, a, a lot of fun. Um, I yeah. think we've sort of set this up. Uh, I, I think you can see the qualitative difference between 19th century, sort of like the mainstream of 19th century American poetry and the, I guess, what became the mainstream of 20th century American poetry. And so we'll talk about sort of what the hell happened to, <laughs> to make this, this intense change. Yeah. So if you're interested in that, come on by and uh, I'll give you my long, boring answer. Oh, that's fantastic. Don't worry. I'll be there to spice it up, guys. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, take it easy. Always fun. And uh, hope to see you there. Yeah. We'll see you guys later. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.